Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, forgive me for having to sit down today. The male ego kicked in and I thought I could pick up something and, uh, <laughs> and the thing won. So uh, <laughs> I pulled my back and just having to take it easy today. Um, between now and Easter, uh, we're doing a series called The Journey. Uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of specific events in Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And uh, I'm calling it The Journey because there's a very specific road that Jesus took, the road of events, and we're not going to look at all of them. We're, we're going to pick out a couple of key specific ones. And uh, we're going to focus in on them and see what uh, God would teach us from those. And, and this very first journey, we're going to look at a stop in Bethany. It was a journey to Bethany. And something very significant happened there. It's when Jesus was anointed. Now, Jesus had been in Bethany earlier when Lazarus was raised from the dead, his good friend Lazarus. And, and so now this is a second trip back to Bethany. Now, if you were standing at the eastern gate of the wall of the old wall of Jerusalem, you would be looking down in the Kindred Valley, valley and uh, it's a long valley, but a, not a very wide valley. You could easily walk across it, and then it would start sloping its way up a little bit, but right there would be the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the eastern gate is where Jesus made his triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. And um, you'd go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Then you'd go on the backside of the garden and you'd go up uh, pretty significantly uh, to the top of a mountain. And that's the Mount of Olives. And uh, that's where Jesus ascended or that's where he's going to come back. Um, and then you get on the other side of the Mount of Olives and, and you're, you're going to go down a little bit. And there is the village of Bethany, the little town of Bethany. And, and so this is where Jesus is located at the, in this story. Uh, so we're, the, the three of the Gospels talk about this event. We're going to focus on J John, but we're going to bring in the other two Gospels, Mark and Matthew, uh, <clears throat> that say some things that add to this story. And uh, when you read all three stories or all three accountings of this, uh, some of them have different uh, things listed and, uh, but one of the other gospels might not say it. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that there's an error in scripture. It's just adding different components to what actually happened. And so in John chapter 12, that's where we're going to pick up our story, beginning with verse one. So six days before the Passover celebration begins, Jesus arrived in Bethany the home of Lazarus. Now he's not going to the home of Lazarus. It's just stating that Bethany is where Lazarus lives. The man he raised, he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus's honor. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. And the, the dinner is actually taking place in a man named Simon it was in his home. He's called Simon the Leopard, but we'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, in verse three, it says, then Mary took a 12 ounce jar of, any, of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard 
and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. And indeed it was, 300 denarii, which is what the average person would make in a year. Now, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they were all siblings. They obviously came from a family of wealth. We know that because Lazarus had a private cemetery and only wealthy people could afford that. And so for her to have this perfume, what an outlandish, uh, it was something she could afford, but uh, it would be a very prized possession. This isn't something you would go down the street corner and buy. It was a very expensive process to accumulate this perfume. And, And so for her to have this, this would be a very expensive gift. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. Not that he cared about the poor because he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, let me go ahead and say on the side here, this is not permission to ignore the poor. Jesus is not saying, you don't have to worry about the poor, you don't have to do anything about the poor. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying in this moment, you know, he knew, he knew Judas's uh, heart. He knew that Judas didn't care about the poor. In fact, what did Jesus really know about Judas? I mean, he knew he was going to betray him. He knew he was a thief. So why did he make him a disciple? Why did he give him the purse to handle the money? Well, Jesus, when he selected Judas, he knew exactly who Judas was. He knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He knew that Judas was going to fulfill God's plan, and he was a part of the process. And um, that had to be emotionally, from a human side, a challenging thing to have this guy with you for three years knowing, knowing what he was going to do and knowing what he was doing. But see, Jesus was looking at the bigger picture. Have you ever noticed how some people are just negative? (laughs) I I mean, they can never say something good about anything. And and they're always going to find the negative thing about everything. Um, uh, I've been going to the same barber for for almost over two decades now. And uh, I always have to think about 
what am I going to talk about when we go, when I go? Because, you know, when you just see somebody every few months, you, you kind of slip into this, you know, you say the exact same thing every time you have the same questions. How's your family? What have you been doing? Where you been? And, and so I always try to spice it up a little bit. I've got a great barber. He's funny. He makes me laugh. And we always uh, talk about some fun things, but there was this guy, his barber was just one of those negative people. I mean, he couldn't say anything good about anything or anybody. How, how he did a business as a barber, I don't know. But uh, so he went to this guy, you know, this guy, uh, one of his clients came and started telling the barber, he said, uh, I'm going on a trip, I'm, getting, I'm getting, ready, getting ready to go to Rome. And this guy was Catholic and he was all excited about it, never been before. And uh, <clears throat> so he's telling him all about the trip and how uh, he's got his name on a list that he uh, might possibly get to meet the Pope. And, and the barber just kind of laid into him. He said, I don't know why you're doing that. That airline you're flying is a horrible airline. Their seats are really small. Their food is terrible. They're always late. It's going to be a, it's going to be a bad trip. And, and Rome, it's a dirty city. And, uh, cause it's old and it's dirty, it's filthy. And I've never been there, but I know. And, uh, and the Pope, you think you're going to meet the Pope? You got to be kidding. You're just going to go and waste your time. I mean, this guy was so negative. And so the next time the guy came in for his haircut, he had just gotten back from Rome. And uh, he told his barber, he said, you know what? You were dead wrong. The airline was great. We had great seats. It was comfortable. The food, you know, I, I was actually impressed. The food was really good. And uh, we got there right on time. The airline took care of our luggage. Everything was right where it was supposed to be. And Rome, yeah, it's an old city, but it's a clean city. In fact, they've got water fountains all over the city and you can drink the water from anywhere and you don't have to buy bottled water. It's clean, it's good. <clears throat> and uh, I did go to the Vatican City and sure enough, I was allowed to uh, get in a line to meet the Pope, and, and I got to be face-to-face -face with the Pope, and I got to have a conversation with him, and, and I kissed his ring. I got down on my knees so he could bless me, and the guy was just dumbfounded. The barber said, well, what did the Pope say to you? He said, well, when I got down on my knees to bless, for him to bless me, he looked, at, he looked at me, and he said, son, you have a horrible haircut. You need to get a new barber. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, there you go. The guy got it back what he deserved. So uh, today, I, we're going to be a witness to a very telling moment in Scripture. And, um, and we're going to see the viewpoint from a couple of different people. And so to grasp the total picture, we're also going to be looking at Matthew 26 and Mark 11, but we'll just bring all those scriptures in here. So Jesus and his disciples had been invited to a dinner and for Jesus's honor. And the guy's name who owned the home was Simon the Leopard. And how would you like to have that name? But that was the identifier because he had been a leopard. Now, obviously, even though the scripture doesn't tell us specifically, uh, Jesus had healed this guy. And the reason we know he had been healed is because if you're a leopard, you're not allowed to own a home within the city limits of anywhere. 
You have to live outside a city. You have to live in the country. You have to be away from everybody. And usually there was a leper colony where all the leopards would live. So the fact that this guy had a home and people would come to his home shows that he had been healed. And, uh, and if you remember, Mary and Martha, they're sisters, and they're the ones who asked Jesus to come and heal their brother, Lazarus. Jesus didn't come until after Lazarus had died and been buried and dead for four days and then did the most miraculous thing and raised him from the dead. And so they're together. They're all together at this dinner party. And while Mary is doing her thing, she had the hot gift of hospitality and she's in the kitchen preparing the food and serving the men as they gathered around the table. They, they would have lounged on the floor on these pillows and would have had all these conversations. And while everybody was enjoying the evening, an amazing moment of love and worship took place that soon would not be forgotten. In fact, we're talking about it 2,000 years later. And Mary took her most prized possession and poured it out on Jesus. And we have a lot to learn from this story. And there are a couple of things I want to share with you. Number one, Jesus is worthy of your worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. You know, every heart, every human heart has a throne in it. And every throne in every human heart has someone or something sitting on that throne. You've got a throne in your life. And someone or something is sitting on that throne. And you're worshiping it. So what is worship? Worship is that activity that gives to someone or something your pledge of devotion your allegiance. Uh, it involves your mind. It involves your emotions. It in, involves your will. And, and it's about you aligning yourself with whatever's on that throne that's in your heart. William Temple wrote it this way. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is quickening our conscience by his holiness. It is nourishment of our mind with his truth. It is purifying our imagination with his beauty. It is the opening of our heart to his love. And it's the surrender of our will to his purpose. You know, a crucial part about uh, worship in church it has nothing to do with the form. It has nothing to do with a particular song or style of song. In fact, it has everything to do with the one with whom it's sung to. And, and if you think you can live any way you want to during the week, on six days of the week, and on that seventh day come to church and turn on worship, you're sadly mistaken. You don't have something or someone else on the throne of your heart six days out of the week and then you walk in here on Sunday and, and then you take your God uh, 
your God person and put him on your throne in your heart for an hour and then you leave and switch your throne out. It doesn't work that way. Worship is when you are desperately trying to align your life with holy God. You know, we're, we're all good at worshiping during the football season. Think about what happens every Saturday and every Sunday, whether you follow a college team or a pro team. You know, people spend a whole bunch of money and, and they'll stand, they'll, they'll ride in lines of cars and, and slow moving traffic and park a mile away and, and, and trek that mile and pay a lot of money for a ticket and get there, you know, long before the game. They'll spend money on the tailgating. Uh, they'll dress in the colors of their team and, and then they'll sit there on a hard seat with no back on it, and they'll sit there for hours and jump up and scream and holler at the top of their voice. Well, we know, we know what worship's all about. We know how to give our allegiance and our loyalty. And I guess, and I bet you don't hold anything back when it comes to cheering for your team. True worship is when you worship the Creator. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is also worthy of our worship because of who He is. Now Mary understood this. She seemed to understand it better than anybody else that was at that dinner party. Uh, she's the one that realized Jesus is not just a man. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. She realized that he was God wrapped in flesh and, uh, and that he was going to save us from our sins. So Jesus is not just some man that walked on earth. He was God in the flesh, and he was God's single solution for our problem called sin. And if for no other reason, this makes him worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of our worship, not only because of who he is, but because of what he has done, past tense. Now for Mary, it was for the raising of her brother from the dead. The cross had not happened yet. But for us, the cross has already happened. And so for us, <clears throat> he is worthy because of what he has done <clears throat> on the cross and that he has taken our sins and he has made it possible for us to be forgiven. He has made it possible, possible for us to be restored uh, into a relationship with holy God. So Jesus is worthy because of what he has done. <clears throat> Jesus is worthy of worship because of what he is doing. You see, for Mary, he was worthy because of his gift of love and he was teaching and he was healing people and she got what he was doing and that she understood he was going to lay down his life for people. For us, we see that he is still moving. Even, you know, for us, we're on this side of the cross, but he is still moving. He is still drawing people to himself. He is still rescuing his creation from the power and penalty of sin, and, and we'll see 
that he is interceding on our behalf. Yesterday, I was on a phone call conversation with a young man that I've been mentoring for many years and, and did his wedding uh, a year ago. And he's a recent graduate. He's now about 24 years old and majoring in engineering and living in another city, got a great job. And, and uh, we were talking about something that happened at work this week. He said, uh, a man at work, one of my coworkers, who's, you know, in his late 40s, so almost double his age, he came up and started asking me spiritual questions. And, and I commented to my friend, I said, that's amazing. He said, it just, it just shows me that you're living your life in such a way because, <clears throat> I mean, my friend's not the kind who's going to run up and down the aisles with his Bible, hitting everybody in the head with it. He's just going to quietly live his life and work hard and, and be obedient. And so he, um, this man twice his age, saw a difference. And this guy, you know, didn't believe in God, doesn't believe, doesn't go to church, doesn't, uh, <clears throat> doesn't claim any kind of spirituality. He started asking spiritual questions. Started wanting to, you know, started asking questions that he was thinking about, like, what, what the, what's the difference between all these different churches? You would know that. So he was questioning things and asking questions. And so he, my friend and I discussed about how he could maneuver that person to ask the right questions. See, you might be asking questions, but you're asking the wrong questions. So you need to help sometimes your friends to make sure you ask the right questions. And, and, and I shared with my friend, I said, at some point, you're going to have to say to him, you know, you can get the answer to all these questions that you're asking, but ultimately the question is, who is Jesus? And what have you done about Jesus? That's the question. Jesus is worthy because of what he's doing, and he is still saving people. He is still seeking people and drawing them to himself. But Jesus is also worthy of worship because of what he will do. You see, for Mary, I think she understood at least better than most that Jesus came to lay down his life for everyone's sins and he was going to do that. But see, for us, there are some things that Jesus is still going to do and that that is for us, he's going to return and he is going to bring an end to this thing called sin. And I want to tell you something else. That means he's going to end this thing called temptation. And I am so looking forward to that. I mean, I've, I've been a Christian for a long time, and at my age, you'd think temptation's not an issue anymore. Oh, don't bet on it. I don't care how old you are or how long you've been walking with Jesus, temptation's still a very much part of your life. There's always that temptation not to trust Jesus. There's always that temptation to do things your way and not Jesus' way. And I am looking forward to that day when temptation is gone. Praise Jesus. I'm so excited about when that's going to happen. <clears throat> that I can go a 24-hour period 
without there being any temptation whatsoever. That's what Jesus is going to do. So Jesus arrives in Bethany, and Martha is serving, and Lazarus and the other guys are lounging around the house. And I can just imagine the conversation that was taking place. Simon the leopard saying, you know, Jesus, you touched me and you made me clean again. You're the great physician. And not to be outdone, Peter probably chimed in and and said, well, I was just a poor fisherman and Jesus chose me. And now we're so close, he's given me the nickname Rocky. And then Mary, uh, I mean, Martha, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew had to speak up. And Matthew said, well, that's nothing. I was a former IRS agent for Rome. And Jesus changed my life. And now I have the privilege of recording what Jesus says and what Jesus does. And then finally, Lazarus speaks up. He said, that's nothing. I was stone dead cold for four days. I was dead as a doornail. I was gone. And Jesus called my name. And here I am alive. Jesus is the author of life. And while all this is happening, Mary slipped out of Simon's home, ran to her house, and got the most prized possession that she owned. And she slipped back into Simon's home. And then she makes her presence known. She breaks open this alabaster container with its nard. And she takes it. Everyone is obviously speechless because there are no words recorded of what was being said at that moment. But Mary made it clear that the only thing in her life that mattered was that Jesus was going to be honored with the best that she had. She didn't bring a perfume jar that was nearly empty. She didn't bring some perfume that she decided she didn't like and it lost its fragrance. She didn't bring the perfume bottle that somebody gave to her as a gift that she wouldn't use and was ready to give it to goodwill. She brought her very best and she broke it open, which meant she was going to use it all. It was broken open and that represented her broken life. And she brought the broken pieces of her life and gave it to Jesus. And in one of the other gospels, it tells us that she actually poured some oil of this perfume on the head of Jesus, which would have been what you would expect. And then with what was left, she poured it on his feet and then took her hair, which in those times a woman's hair was her glory, and she took her glory and exchanged it for the glory of Jesus. She took her very best And gave it to Jesus. Because compared to him, her best was nothing. 
and her brokenness and her glory was laid at the feet of Jesus. Her worship was priceless. When people are in love, they do crazy things. And she was in love with Jesus and who he was and what he was there to do. Worship is not coming to God to get something. It's coming to God to give something. You know, um, some of us want to give God our leftovers. Uh, there was this boyfriend who wanted to get his girlfriend a nice gift, and he went to the store and he asked the salesperson, uh, I want to get my wife from really, or uh, my girlfriend some really nice perfume. And she brought out a bottle and she said, well, this is our best. It's, it's uh, about $100. And he said, well, you know, I was thinking something a little cheaper. And, and so she brought out another bottle and it was $50. And he said, mm, I'm thinking a little cheaper than that. And so they started going through the list. She brought out a $35 bottle, and finally she brought out a $10 bottle of perfume. And, and, he, and he finally said, can you show me something that's even cheaper than that? And she said, I sure can. And she held up a mirror to him. <laughs> Sometimes I think we as believers think what is the least that I can give and do and it be enough for Jesus? When you ought to be thinking, Jesus gave me his all. I can do nothing less. I need to give him all of me. I need to give him all that I have, all that I am. I owe him my eternal soul. Worship is an act of selflessness. Can you say today that Jesus is worthy of everything to you? You know, Judas was quick to criticize her. And there's always going to be people who criticize you for living the way that you live. Judas's life is a warning of those who pretend to know God and pretend to serve God, but whose hearts are far from God. The disciples looked at what Jesus, what uh, Mary did. And they were saying, what a waste. And Jesus was saying, what an investment. The disciples were saying, how foolish. Jesus said, how beautiful. The disciples could only see the cost. But Jesus saw the value. I find it interesting that some 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Mary and what she did. 
You know, if you had lived back then and you were walking on the street and you would have said, who's the greatest person is? Is it Nero or this lady named Mary in Bethany? People would have said, well, I don't know who you're talking about in Bethany, but definitely Nero's the most important thing. Now, 2,000 years later, nobody talks about Nero. Nobody names their kid Nero. And if you're thinking about it, don't. Name your dog Nero, but don't name your kid Nero. But people name their daughters Mary. And people are still thinking and talking about Mary. And what she did was priceless. She laid everything at his feet. Worship isn't about coming to get something from God. It's about you coming and giving something to God. And when you bless the Lord, you will be blessed in return. You know, one last thought. When Mary broke open that jar, the Bible says it filled the whole house with a fragrance. Everybody could tell. I was thinking about my friend, my 24-year-old friend who called yesterday. When he lives his broken life that's poured out to Jesus in his workplace, the fragrance of Jesus fills the whole workplace. And that's why a man twice his age noticed that something was different about this young man. And I need to learn from him. When you live your life sold out to Jesus, it becomes a fragrance wherever you are. At home is the fragrance felt. At work, does the fragrance of Jesus impact other people's lives or do they just see somebody who's all about themselves wherever you go may the fragrance of Jesus be known let's pray